tonight on Arena. Pat Kinnavan and performing all five of his Fish Amble plays in one week. And new albums from Nadine Shah, MGMT and Rod Stewart up for review. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena and you can watch the live stream on rte.ie forward slash arena. In the past two decades, you may have been lucky enough to see one or more of Pat's Kinavan's five one-man shows, Forgotten, Silent, Before, Underneath and most recently, King. The plays tell stories from the margins of society, exploring what it is to be old, to be abandoned, to be homeless, to be physically deformed, estranged or a recluse and lots of other themes in there as well. The stories are told throughout by Pat Kinavan's unique performance style. He uses words, he uses gesture, movement, lots of humour in there as well, nods to old Hollywood musicals and icons like Elvis. The shows have gained huge international acclaim, winning Olivier Scotsman, uh, Fringe First and many more awards. Now for the first time, Fish Amble, the new play company, brings all five of these productions of Pat's plays together at one stage, and I said over a week in the menu, over five consecutive nights. There's no night off. The stage in question is the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera, and it all starts on Tuesday next for five consecutive nights before King heads off on a, an international jaunt, London, Serbia, New York, Los Angeles and San Francisco. And I'm delighted to have Pat Kinavan in studio with me this evening. What on earth possessed you to do all five of these plays one night after another, Pat? Well, first of all, thank you for that fantastic introduction. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about, but uh, yeah, I'm delighted to be here, Sean, and thank you for having me on. Um, uh, we were doing, uh, we did the, we launched the fifth show last year, mm. uh, King. Yeah, you were in, I think it was around this time last yeah, year. Yeah, it was around this time. It, yeah. And um, we were in uh, Dunleary in the pavilion, which we love. And Hugh there, we were kind of joking after the show, said, uh, would you ever think about doing the five? And I said, absolutely. I said, yeah. And he said, uh, well, let's have a think about it. And he was on to me very soon after that. And and, we, and here, here you and are here doing are. all five. Well, let's go back then to how the whole thing started. Um, I mean, you have a well-established career as an actor. I was just checking with you before we came to her tonight. You also, you'd written a couple of plays for larger casts. But yeah. What was it? Was it back in 2006 with the very first play, Forgotten? What was it that set you off to say, no, I want to do something here that's for me and that takes in the, the kind of the breadth of styles and the breadth of performance techniques that I spoke about in the introduction? Yeah, Thanks, Sean. I was, I suppose, I was, I had done a lot of ensemble work, like you mm. had done an awful lot, and um, and I was very grateful for that. Um, but I, I kind of found myself wanting to express myself in a different way and kind of talk about things that were going on around me, you know. Mm. And and Ireland was changing then; it was changing a lot, you know. And we were heading toward a crash, and and uh, you know, I suppose. I wanted to get away, even though I'm so grateful for all the chances, every single mm. chance I had. I wanted to get away from doing kind of retrospective theatre, really. And, uh, you know, we'll say older theatre, you know, mm. cl- classic theatre, which is great. I mean, God, I'm so lucky. Like, we all were so lucky to be working, particularly in the 90s when mm. you were... You know, if you you'd find you'd find yourself in a huge ensemble in the summer or in the winter, do you know what I mean? T- things have changed now, 
but um, so I decided I, I talked to Jim Cullerton who is the, an amazing director and I kind of I was talking about the idea of this uh, of forgotten and about growing old in Ireland and you know how, how what I wanted to say about that and uh, he took it on and 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 when you at that point I mean there's 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 two things at play there I suppose Pat one of all mm-hmm. one, first of all there's this you had some kind of sense that the society was changing that we were on the had you at the time that we were on the cusp of a crash so the, there was that social conscience in some way was that a, a, an important aspect of it I think I think you're right I I never really recognised that before but I think that I was by osmosis or something like that that I was mm. kind of uh, starting to get concerned about things and uh, I was thinking about you know uh, I don't know the, the way the three generational family li- living together was you know it's something of the past uh, and, and I was I was curious about that and I was curious about my own mortality as well I was only 39 at the time but yeah. I, I just thought you know I'm interested in this I'm, I'm interested in developing this further and, and Jim and everyone at Fish Amble really kind of facilitated that uh, so we took a big gamble, really. You know what I mean? So you had that social conscience or that social idea kind of pushing you in in one way. Then there was that other aspect that you were talking about, these different, you know, the different theatrical skills that you have, that facility with movement, that facility with um, creation of these kind of wildly comic but incredibly tragic characters at the same time. Right. Um, were they in equal measure the, the th- what you wanted to do theatrically and what you wanted to do, I'm using the word socially to describe yeah, the other side. That's a really good point. I think I, I've always been like, again, I don't know why, but I've always been drawn to kind of more continental style of, of theatre, like uh, God rest the beautiful uh, Tom McIntyre. But, you know, yeah. that, that sort of style. And you were in one of his, you were amazing in one, in one of his plays with me. And uh, it's that style of using the entire, the entire, uh, skill or whatever bit of skill you have of voice and of body and of text. Do yeah. you know what I mean? And, and image was very important. Image, that yeah. As well. and, and that is one of the things that, and I remember first seeing Forgotten. Maybe give us the, the basic setup of, because you were talking about people who were ageing. That was the, the, the real thrust of this piece. Who who are we listening to as we hear you in this piece in in Forgotten? We're we're listening to Flor. He's he's the the main older man, and there's four men. Four, sorry, two men, two women, and they're all between eighty and and one hundred. And I play those four mm. characters. But Flor is the main kind of narrator of the piece. He's in he's in a home. Um, he's not happy. He's confused. He has issues with his mind, and. Um, and he can be really, really funny sometimes because he's got no filter. But in, in this piece that I'll do, it's a very short piece. I We've updated these scripts as well. And oh, I've, have you? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've just, you know, I, I've uh, recently went through them with Jim and, I, I you know, tw- 18, 20 years, is, there's a lot has changed. So, we, yeah. so this is a very short piece from yeah. Flor is, is uh, he's upset. Right. Okay. Um... I'm I'm here in the, in this home now, and um, I'm I'm to be honest with you, I'm in the arsehole of nowhere, uh, eighty five miles from my own village. The last home I was in, it shut down. Ah, uh, dear Mister Florence, we regret that the only other care facility to capacitate your individual needs is in the neighbouring county. Of Limerick. Who 
the fuck will visit me here? I know nobody here. If they let me die here, I will haunt the fuckers. I will scare the shit out of them all. There we go. Pat Kinavan as Floor in Forgotten. The first of the five plays that he has already done over a period of, what is it, almost 20 years, 18 years now at this stage. And he's doing all five of them together in the coming weeks at the Pavilion Theatre in, in Dunalera. And I'm interested that you mentioned there, Pat, going into that about having updated it. I suppose the situation with care homes, particularly in the last, I mean, there were problems back in 2006. Absolutely. But things have changed for the worse in many ways yes. since that. So that that's part of that adjustment, that social side of it. The social side of it, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, um, I, I suppose my, my commentary really in Forgotten Sean was always a kind of a, a comparison between the way we treat our beautiful elderly in this country mm. and how it, it, the same thing is done in the East, in China and in Japan and how the sense of duty is enormous there. And, and you think we, we could learn something from that? Is that it? Or I what suppose is... I, I, I'm still battling with it. Mm. I'm still battling with it. I think some some people, he says at one stage, he said, you know, others, you know, others get on grand, you know, they're, they're looked after and others get to bake in the sand of no care. You know, it's, 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 it's almost like a lottery right yeah. now. And, um, you know, I just think I've always been of the belief that they're kings and queens, you know. They, our older people ought to be cherished so much more than they are at the moment in the country. So that's my only my little voice on it. And and that was the, there was quite a serious element to that. When I think of you know the second play in particular, Silent, which had which kind of brought us into this character, Valentina. We we're, we're in that old Hollywood kind of feel to it. And and there's there's a, a lightness uh, to it, but again, there's a great sadness behind all of that as well. Yes. Uh, silent it, it, it was something that really came to me in 2008, uh, Sean. I, 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 w- I was in New York City, actually, with Forgotten. It was my first time there. And um, and I just couldn't believe how many homeless people were there. I, I've never seen anything like mm. that. And then when I came back to Dublin, which I love, like I'm in Dublin 35 years, and, uh, and I just got a shock. Uh, my eyes were opened, and that was the start of, uh, you know, so many unfortunate people finding themselves in a place where they never thought they would be and and something it came to me very quickly actually silent and I really wanted to to expose that and had you any idea when you had written the first play that the, you know there would be another four coming after that that no, you would have a set of five in fact no clue I had absolutely no clue I was so and I'm still so grateful and I I come from a place of gratitude always and I was so grateful about forgotten but when silent came along it kind of came along with a punch you yeah, know and and then the, 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 this kind of momentum seemed to arrive, but yet when the third one came along, which was which was underneath, wasn't it? Um, was the third one in the piece? Now I I can still have images in my head of of that particular piece, because there was this sense of being buried, right. somebody in a grave coming up out of the grave and going back down into the grave. Yeah. After, image was very important in this play as much as the text was, I thought. Absolutely, and underneath, underneath really is the uses the iconography of ancient Egypt. And uh, you had seen that, I think, had you, on, 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 on when touring with the other two pieces or one of the other two pieces, you'd, you'd seen some Egyptian museum somewhere, had you? No, I, 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 I found a statue. 
You found it just yeah, just in a, in a kind of bric-a-brac shop, and a kind of I was thinking about it, and there was me presuming it was some kind of exotic museum. <laughs> oh yes, it was, Sean. Yeah, I was definitely. <laughs> you found a statue in a bric-a-brac shop. In a bric-a-brac shop, but uh, she she I, she uh, the character is the same age as myself, uh, and she is uh, fifty years old, and uh, she's buried, and uh, she she tells her story really, um, mm. from the grave. I know. And how she got there. And that is an extraordinary kind of story to be told and it, it's, it has all of the strength of that. I want to get a little bit from the second last because I know we spoke about King last year which brings in, you know, other things like Martin Luther King and Elvis the King. Yes. But in, in before, we have, there's a touch of a, a, a lost, a kind of an adult, a boy child who's an adult here really in Pontius, isn't there really? Yeah, Pontius is, is uh, alienated from his daughter. His daughter is now uh, 21 and he's going to meet her uh, in 2015 when uh, Cleary's shut down. And it's specifically that moment. On that day. The the, the shock of that, because it was quite shocking at the time and it was big news, I remember, at the time Mm. when when it shut down. Did that strike you immediately as something that would fit into the sort of theatre that you'd be making at that Absolutely. I, I, in its own way, Cleary's for country people anyway. You know yourself coming up, yeah. you always felt safe in Cleary's. You went into Cleary's, you're going to meet somebody or you're going to go on from yeah. there or to buy something, to buy a hat or a good coat. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so Punches really, he's going, into, he's going to meet his daughter. He hasn't seen her in 17 years. She has been unfairly kept away from him. And I suppose I just wanted to write about a man or a woman as a parent who's been alienated. Mm. It's dedicated to my, my best, best friend, Brian. And, um, and uh, yeah, I, I just wanted, I wanted to give it the perspective of the pain of that alienation. Mm. Um, a lot of the time, there's a lot of litigation and stuff going on with it, but it's just the human story of somebody not being able to see their child. Yeah. And it was called before. Let's. Can we hear an extract from from before then? And maybe do we, what what context do we need for this? Well, he's inside in the cafe now in in uh, in, in Clary's, and he's waiting to meet the daughter. So he's having a cuppa, right? Ah, uh, mammy, quoting Ecclesiasticus, whatever thy hand find it to do, do it with all thy might. Did you ever think to yourself, Jesus? This could be the very last time I'll ever do this. Be it stirring this cuppa or uh, cutting your toenails or shaving your jaw or yawning like a hippo or, or laughing out loud or swallowing cake or kissing wet lips or gazing into your own deep eyes in the bathroom mirror. Well, I thought that on the way up here to Cleary's makes me relish the day even more for how special it's all going to be for her and for me. Imagine the first time and the last time this will ever happen. That's a little section from before the fourth of the five plays that Pat Kinavan will be performing at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary. So, so when you've put the, all of them, and King then is the final one, which mm. we spoke about last year, and there is that mixture, the story around Martin Luther King, yes. story around Elvis being the king as well, and this Elvis impersonator who's kind of at the heart of it, which gives us a sense of the fun that's in there as well. Putting all five of them together now, and I presume at some stage you've had to maybe run them one day after the other to kind of get a sense of what, mm. what the feel of that is. 
Do you see them as a unit now in a way that you maybe never saw them when you were writing them? I suppose I see them. I've always seen them. And thank, thanks, Sean, for saying that. Like it's, I, I see them as albums. Oh. It's really weird. I see them as like, as if they had their own sleeves and their albums and they came at different times of my life. Mm. Uh, my son, Kez, is 23 now. His voice when he was five is in Forgotten. <laughs> and his voice when he was 20 or 19 or 20 is in Before. So it's like me as a man, but also as a father. It's almost as if I've I've changed and yet I haven't changed. But I know by looking at the pieces that I that I have and I've matured and and these have helped me mature, if that makes any sense. Like definitely next week in the pavilion for me is about a kind of a very quiet and humble celebration of them. And I'm dedicating them to my father who's gone like. 35 years now but and it's also to my mother who's who's alive down in Cork I love you ma'am and my, uh, they're a kind of a dedication to, to that and to my late brother Alan and my brother-in-law Walter who are gone so it's 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 to me it's a like um, it's a really quiet celebration of m- my my family al- yeah. al- alive and dead Get a sense of what you're saying though that not that you're putting them to bed but that they're, they're certainly the fifth album, there may be a new musical direction coming in album number six. Yeah, it's it's kind of, um, I've done the four before. But yeah. The five is a challenge. And you know what? I might never get a chance to do this in my life again. And, and I'm not afraid. I, I just want to go and do my best for the audiences because everyone has been really supportive of me. Yeah. all across the country um, and particularly in Dunleary they've been brilliant audiences you Listen, know. It, it's a phenomenal five nights of theatre I wonder will there be people who will attend all five I'm sure there will be because you can do one, two, three, four Yeah five. you can you pick can do, and do what you yeah, want If you've missed one along the way you can now's your chance to see the one you missed or you know if you want to go back to the beginning if you start people who started coming in later It could be an ambulance like on the Saturday night <laughs> to take me away but I'm, I'm, I'm prepared for that <laughs> <laughs> there you go. With the best of luck with uh, it. Hope you get to Saturday on it. I'm sure you will. I've no doubt at all. Thank you so Pat. much, John. Thanks for coming in. Thank That's Pat boy. Kinnavan and Fish Ambles. Five plays by Pat Kinnavan. Forgotten, Silent, Underneath, Before and King over five nights from Tuesday the 27th of February through until Saturday the 2nd of March. That's next week at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera. Full information on fishamble.com. Now, if you've seen the film Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, starring Gary Oldman, Colin Firth and Toby Jones, then you know the work of the London Irish writer Bridget O'Connor. She co-wrote the screenplay with her husband Peter Strahan, uh, for which they received an Oscar nomination and a BAFTA award in 2012. Sadly, the accolades were posthumous for Bridget O'Connor. She died two years earlier of cancer. cancer. She started out as a short story writer. In the 1990s, she wrote two acclaimed collections as well as plays for radio and stage. Her fiction is full of fast-talking, conscience-free characters out for what they can get from others. And now a new selection of these stories have been brought together in a book called After a Dance, which, of course, is one of the stories within the collection as well. Paula Shields has been reading it for us. She's with me in in studio now. I I wondered about the name of Bridget O'Connor, how familiar she would be to people. I think when you hear the Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy thing, that that gives us a a lead-in. But who was she outside of the screenplay writing side of things, Paula? 
Um, first and foremost, she was an amazing short story writer. And I think had she lived, we'd certainly know the name mm. much better than we do. I think she's well known in London, less so here. Um, and I think 2010 even is beginning to be a while ago now. But she grew up in London. She was one of five siblings. Her parents were from Cork and Limerick. She would have spent her summers on Banna Strand. Um, she wrote a play eventually called The Flags. It's kind of set around there, a kind of London Irish comedy. Mm. Um but I think there's no doubt, you know, she wrote Tinker Taylor with her husband, Peter Strahan, and he has gone on since to write the TV adaptations of Wolf Hall, the Lenny Abrahamson play, film Frank, the Goldfinch, the film adaptation of the Donna Tart novel. Like, I'm sure she would have been, you know, megastar by now had she lived, but she was only 49 when she went, you know. Um, just desperately sad. Yeah, it does sound as if there was there was a lot more to come within all of that. Um, I, there's a story. There's a, there's a an introduction to this uh, selection after a dance being the the collection. There's an introduction from uh, her daughter, her daughter who is Constance Strahan, and, and she tells a story about the, uh, an agent asking the mother about whether she was a pessimist or an, op- an optimist. Her her answer is absolutely brilliant. That's right. She describes herself as a happy pessimist, and I think that's a very good clue to what you're going to get in these stories. I mean, I was thinking you had Armistead Mopin on last night talking mm. about Tales of the City and this is a very different, very feral, dog-eat-dog kind of world we get in these stories. I read somewhere a friend of hers described her as funny, acerbic and wild and that too is a clue mm. as to what you're going to get. You know, the, the, there's a mix of comedy and cruelty and a touch of pathos. Some of these characters are so wild you can't identify with them but often there's a little vulnerability or, or a little hook yeah. that you can see yourself in. And that's set up pretty much in the, in the first story, mm. Love Jobs. And even some of the titles, you kind of have to look twice to see did you read it correctly. But <laughs> Love Jobs is the title of the story. Oh, she's messing with our heads all yeah. the way through. So the first story is told from the point of view of an incredibly hungover best man. The wedding has happened the day before. He has managed to stay that night with the bride and groom. The bride is less than impressed. Off he goes with their dog for a walk because they are fighting over the wedding presents. En route alongside a canal, he gets mugged by two brothers. Inadvertently, the dog dies. He ends up in a pub with the muggers who are now consoling him. They all end up in tears. Um, I mean, it's just the maddest. There are so many twists and turns to this. But underneath... There's a loneliness to it. One of the things that has happened to this guy is that he's met his ex-wife at the wedding and she's ignored him. So even though this is someone who's so self-absorbed, a lot of narcissists in this book, you do end up feeling for him. But it is just the most extraordinary turn of events. Yeah, and and the other thing about the best man in question here, and this is given to us by the daughter, as in, I suppose it would be his niece. Lots of of Bridget O'Connor's siblings are identified as the as the inspiration for various characters within the various stories. Colourful family, you would have to say. One can only guess at the family dynamics. I have to say, I found that hair raising. I mean, and apparently they went looking for themselves in the stories, so mm. they knew this. I mean, just shocking. Um, like the second story is a story called Heavy Petting, and. There's a young narrator who's quite sympathetic. She wants to be a novelist. So you think, ah, tinges of Bridget, maybe. Mm. But the sister has gone mad on drugs. She's won a goldfish called, she calls Godfrey and brings it home. And the story, you get hints of that once upon a time, this was an okay family. The mother has mental health issues, but eventually they all end up on pills one way or the other. Mm. But 
Godfrey is the one bright spark in a very kind of neglected, dingy household. Like Bridget O'Connor is not afraid to bring you into the grime of things. I mean, it's kind of car crash television we have here. But you, she keeps saying the narrator is looking at Godfrey all along and she feels Godfrey is doomed and indeed he is. Um, but there's an incident later on where Magella, out of her mind on drugs and she's gone off the goldfish at this stage, plays a stabbing game with the goldfish. And apparently this is based on one of Bridget's own sisters. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't bear thinking about too much. Although, again, um, the Constance, the daughter of Bridget, mm. who writes the introduction, talks about the family were very fond of creative honesty, as they put it. So, in other words, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. It seems to have been the, the, the general gist of things there. No. But, you know, characters who are going to spend their time trying to stab goldfishes, characters who, like in the first story, uh, are involved in this kind of nefarious activity along the, the, the banks of a canal and, and, and a poor dead dog in the midst of it all as well. And there are other difficult characters and other stories. How does she keep us interested in these people? The language, the sheer vitality of it. She's surprising. She's funny. You know, there's a story called Kissing Time and it's about a 25 year old who realises a cross dentist tells her you're going to lose all your teeth because you haven't looked after them. And in the middle of all this, She's appalled and she starts mm. thinking back to some very unpleasant looking exes of hers and some mm. less than fortunate kissing experiences. But in the middle of all this, she says the dentist had alopecia. Now, that wasn't fair, was it? Head like a kid's fight. The damage combed over, his fingers in latex, the smell of new dollies. Like every time she's surprising you. So you're on a kind of mad carousel with her on a kind of roller coaster. Um, but I and just... The stories are utterly distinctive, but mostly it's the language and the sheer invention. And it, but there's a predatorial aspect to some of the characters as well. I'm thinking of the story, the, the story Harp, where the narrator here, you quite definitely wouldn't want to be around them, I think. No, there are lots of these people you really want, wouldn't want to meet in daylight, never mind on a dark path. Mm. Harp is a story, it was a significant story for her. She won, she won an award for it at the Time Out Short Story Award in 1991. But it's about a busker on... The London Underground is playing a harp and his name is Martin and it turns out he's from Hendon and he lives with his mother and he goes to music college so it's all the middle class signifiers. But the narrator is this young woman who's who, she opens the story saying I didn't want his Reeboks someone else will get his Reeboks I wanted the harp, you know, and she gets it eventually. But what you see is she is watching him like a crocodile after its prey. And eventually she takes him to Wimpy because she realises he's wrapped the harp up after a session. She's sung with him. They've made money. Yeah. It's, it's, it should be angelic. It's anything but. And given, given that we have that story about a harp and some of the situations that you're that you're describing to me, we're talking this was the are these London set stories? Are they? Irish set stories or are they London Irish set stories? Is is can you man trying to box them into a particular place and time? But can I do that? Can you do that? I'm not sure you can. I mean, I lived in London in the nineties, mm. and I'm glad to say I didn't meet any of these people. But I do think the stories to me are more London than Irish. They're not particularly Irish, right. but they have that great sense of the hustle of a big city, the kind of indifference of the big city. You better be able to manage for yourself. And one final uh, qu- the, the story shop talk, which maybe gives us a sense of that there was a great there was a great screenwriter in there as well as a great short story writer. Yes, I love this story. It's about a couple called Sal and Lol who seem to spend all their time. At work complaining about each other to their colleagues. Now she's in this very upmarket boutique selling very expensive designer dresses. He's a garage mechanic 
So the worlds couldn't be more different. But one of the lovely things about the story is it's dialogue fueled. It's intricate. She moves from one world to the other and back. So you really feel that screenplay. That's like a, fi- like a film, yeah. Structure in it. And then it's got a lovely twist of an ending. It's not the unhappiest ending in the in the book. I'm not sure it's entirely happy, but it will sh- it will shock you in a good way, I think. Yeah, so not happy and not entirely unhappy <laughs> either, which is, it sounds like the, um, the the happy pessimist, isn't that? It, it sounds something like that. This, this sounds like a collection that you're suggesting people should read, Paula. Oh, I loved it. I thought it was like nothing else. You know, that I'd read, even though like the title story is kind of different and muted. And I thought hints of McGahern somewhere in there. But she's such a distinctive voice and you just feel the weight of that loss now. After a Dance is the title of the collection by Bridget O'Connor that is published by Picador that Paula Shields has been talking to us about. And so to that little section of the week, album reviews. First up this evening will be Filthy Underneath from Nadine Shah. English musician's fifth album comes after a deeply traumatic few years uh, during which her own mother died. She struggled with her own addiction and her mental health deteriorated. After a period of rehab, Shah recovered and has poured her pain into this latest album. Second this evening will be Loss of Life from American Electro- Electronic Duo. MGMT, their first studio album in six years, features a guest appearance from the French singer Christine and the Queens. And finally, Rod Stewart teams up with Jules Holland on an album of big band classics called Swing Fever. Rod sings the music he first fell in love with. No, that's not a marketing statement at all. I'm joined now by Kate Brandon Harding and Simon Marr. And let's start with uh, Nadine Shah. And let's go straight into a track, actually, a track called Topless Mother. There we have Topless Mother from Nadine Shah and her new album Filthy Underneath. Let's talk about Nadine Shah musically, first of all, if we could, Kate Brennan Hardy. I mean, I don't know how many tracks we have across the album. Is it nine, ten, eleven? Eleven. Eleven tracks across the album. That is a an amazingly upbeat, you know, high energy piece, and it it's it's only one of the eleven tracks on the album. They're all so so different. It struck me as I was as I was listening to them musically. Where would you where would you put her, or can you put her in a musical spot? That's the thing. I was thinking about that earlier today because vocally, sometimes now this she is not like Katie Lang, but the tone of her voice mm. has a Katie Lang resonance. Uh, her music could be punk, synth, Susie and the Banshees. She could always also be a way more alternative, rockier Roisin Murphy in terms mm. of how she addresses substance. She's um, she's musically come along like this is close sonically to her last album, Kitchen Sink, and she kind of always has this kind of swirling beat, this melody this cathartic kind of influence. But it's impossible. I think it's impossible yeah. to bracket her. Um, I think she's doing something incredibly um, filled with integrity, filled with truth and something that's completely compelling. Yeah, and this is her fifth album and um, I don't know whether in the previous four albums it was, it was equally difficult to to pin her down. But there's mm. no doubting that the music... The musicianship of the track that we just heard, yeah. uh, Simon, it, I presume it's her vocal doubled up with it those is. wonderful harmonies. I don't know how many of the instruments she's <laughs> playing along the way as well, but you have a sense of this wonderful unity within it. And there is, and it's a huge, it's a huge, huge sound. Ben Hillier has been involved and on Kitchen Sink on the last album, I think people were really, really surprised because she's always had a very, obviously enough, by her accent, a very, very distinctive voice. Mm. But when she's brought in that, uh, the closest I could get when I was trying to describe it music was that it almost sounded like Depeche Mode that there was mm. a sort of a Depeche yeah. Mode feel to it but it's more and more and as the layers build up more and more and with the, her vocal and it's her strength on her vocal is that 
you don't need to put throw all the toys at this, but it's like it's hard, it's industrial, yeah. but it really, really is so melodic too. And the irony of all of that is that it's coming from a place of incredible darkness within Nadine Shah's uh, own life, the death of her mother, uh, addiction problems and all sorts of issues in her own life, Kate. Yeah, there is. I mean, the thing is, the one thing about Nadine Shah, for people who are listening who are just getting introduced to her, she has always taken life exactly by the horns. She has written completely like her debut album was about the uh, death of two of her former lovers. She, uh, in this album, she was coping with after Kitchen Sink, uh, she had been looking after her terminally ill mother. We went into lockdown, her mother died. There's parts of this album where she's addressing the loss of that, how to try and remember her. But while her mother was terminally ill, she ended up getting addicted to substances. She speaks very openly about that. Mm. And then she spiralled into psychosis, like one of the songs called Greatest Dancer. She's there taking some substances while watching Strictly Come Dancing and sort of losing her mind in literally. There was an intervention. She went to rehab. So this album is kind of, she's addressing what's gone on for her. She's trying to make sense of it. The song we just listened to, Topless Mother, is actually her and a conversation, in conversation in her mind with a therapist. And it's very sardonic. There is like complete beauty in the lyrics but they're, they'll punch you in the gut. What is she singing about? Because both of you chose this one uh, Simon both of you wanted to hear uh, Sad Lads. Yeah now this this is a re- apart from everything else it's really really part when you're listening to somebody like Nadine Shah there's artists who want to sort of kind of separate themselves kind of be a persona or be a character mm. almost in their own movie whereas Nadine Shah is honest to the point of almost painful and in this this is a spoken word bit where she talks about everything that's happened uh, and how bad uh, are the things that have happened the, the, but the things it's traumatic mm. yeah okay and, and if, is this typical of the kind of how she handles the trauma on the album Yes, it, it would be typical, but this song is more visceral because she's speaking. Yeah, she's yeah. not singing. Yeah, it has that kind of hip hop feel to it. What's worse, dying before your time or living beyond it? Sad lads anonymous, kids who broke promises. I blamed my parents. All of us in the madhouse did. Sad lads anonymous um, from Nadine Shah's new album, Filthy Underneath. And it maybe it is because she's speaking, but she can't, you you hear this incredible pain in her voice as she's doing that, Kate. You do hear incredible pain in this, but you also hear the cathartic release of her speaking about it. And I think there's a fine line. There's a lot of artists will talk about traumatic experiences that happened to them, and that obviously creates art. But there's a line where where you could be indulgent. This isn't mm-hmm. ever indulgent. This is completely real, and I think it's accessible for people. And despite the darkness of some of the themes, there's, it's not that. She has big some big happy ending at the end at the end of no. it, but there's always a sense of hope on, on the tracks. There's something I think it's she's using this. Well, she's using this album. She's using everything and the way she performs and she's mm. on tour at the moment. She's going to be playing in Wheelands in May, but I think she's using all of this effectively like a therapy. There is something definitely yeah. cathartic about the album, and while it gets really really dark inside. It's couched in such beautiful music and in such beautiful delivery as well that it makes this, this is essential. All right, essential. So how does that translate into stars from you, Simon? Well, I've decided that I'm, I'm sitting back and relaxing in my chair, but I've decided that I think this is going to be my first five stars of the year. First five stars of the year, Kate Brennan, arms aloft arms as he aloft. said that. Yes, because I don't think I've given anything five stars in quite some time. Mm. I think this is a masterpiece and I think it's something that even if the music may not appeal to you at the beginning, it's something to listen to and it's five stars. Yeah, so uh, two sets of five stars and there are very dark themes within it and it may uh, be triggering for some people. So those who 
want to check out our helplines, it is well worth doing that. rte.ie forward slash helplines. Let us move on to MGMT, loss of life. The American electronic duo MGMT, first studio album in six years, features a guest appearance from French singer Christine and the Queens. But Simon Marr, I'm guessing that back in the day, is it, I mean, many years ago we talked yeah. about it. We're talking 17 or Which I think years. 2007, Oracular Spectacular, I think right. it was 2007, so yes. 17, 17 years then. 17 years. 17 years ago. <laughs> were you one I of those indie heads? Um, yeah, and Jimmy, I'm Jim Team on. I was a huge fan. The first time that I ever heard kids and tried to pretend this was going to be the biggest, biggest thing ever. And I remember it was one of the albums, the follow-up was one of the albums I was most excited about, I think, mm. in my life. And when Celebration arrived, in 2011 there was a real sense of uh, oh exactly right, is this it and I, I honestly thought that was it you know they've had yeah. their 15 minutes in the sun we're never going to hear from them again a couple of things happened lockdown happened and one of their songs got played everywhere in lockdown and now in Saltburn uh, they re- reappeared again yeah. in Saltburn and now they're back with another album that almost feels like it's like oh we have a second chance but it does feel like there's a bit of grasping with both hands going on here and what about the presence of Christine and the Queens it, it does just on one track that that Christine and the Queens is involved or yeah, is more so involved in that collaboration kit Christine and the Queens is involved he's involved in Dancing in Babylon and uh, this track comes in I think it's track 3 or tra- track 4 on the album now I'm in a, I was an MGMT Nostalgia Buzz fan I think sometimes when I hear it I've said it in my notes it's like a fever dream there is parts of this album that I just am like this is reaching too far uh, I think a lot of people will probably like the dancing uh, the, yeah. the Dancing in Babylon featuring Christine but for me it's so dry hard it's so hipster is past the hipster sell by date. <laughs> Even in Dancing in Babylon? Yes. Oh, well, let's have a listen. <laughs> there we go. Uh, it's well worth watching on uh, rte.ie forward slash arena to see the grimaces on Kit Brennan Harden's face <laughs> as, as she listens to that. I, I felt your skinny jeans were kind of fitting you very well as you were I, listening to uh, Dancing in Babylon. Do you know, after I, um, after I listened to this last night, I went searching around the house to see could I find my MGMT t-shirt from 2009 or whenever it was mm. that I saw them live. I was surprised at how much I liked this. And but and give, coming from somebody who had completely given up, and even when Little Dark Age, I think mm. got 600 million plays or something when it appeared again in 2020 you know it would it just completely passed me by but when I listened to this album I found myself stopping and kind of going this is alright you know but I couldn't find the t-shirt and maybe that says something yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's nice kind of I was saying as we were listening to Dancing Babylon a bit of a country feel off it which kind of made it a little bit more palatable to my ears I suppose there is a country feel off it to me there's a bit of a bang of yacht rock off parts of it I think it changes too much for me and I think it's almost overproduced I think that's what's irritating me because I am an MGMT fan mm. um, I would love I love all the like electronic bits that they bring in I love that there's sirens One Truck's Point Never is actually um, one of the people that's involved in the album do you know that Sean Ono Lennon was also um, uh, right. plays the keys on Bubblegum right. um, on the album there's just something about that track in particular that it started to grate on me because I felt this is trying to do um, nostalgia by numbers for the for now does that make sense? Nostalgia by numbers for now it's really setting yourself up for a fall to have a track that's called Nothing to Declare yeah <laughs> <laughs> What um, band from the 1960s and 70s is, oh, is oh, not oh, in there? All of them, yes, yeah, they're all <laughs> the in Beach there. The Beach Boys, yeah. the Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel, yeah. 
Yeah. And and then a few little yellow submarine effects in, in the midst of it all. But, but, but I it's just, very pleasant to listen to. I think it's a really nice effect. And I think that particularly on tracks that there's two or three tracks on this album mm. that I think really showed them in a very positive way. There's somewhere, I, I agree totally with Kate, where it's like they've thrown a whole load of things at it and they've taken stuff that's meh, not particularly good. Okay, but just I, in case but, people are going, who are we talking about? MGMT and their album Loss of Life. But this song and two or three others of the track on the on the album, I think are very good. And if you were looking up, if you're looking up solid in the dictionary you know you'd see a picture of MGMT in this album I reckon Solid is perilously close to nice mm. um, <laughs> yeah. Kate um, I don't think you're even as feeling as generous as Simon clearly is Do you know what it is it's an album that is it's like a football match it's an album of two halves uh, the latter half where um, that song Nothing to Declare comes in when they mellow it down I like it I find it superb easy listening yeah. but easy listening is not what I expect from MGMT and I actually think that I, I just was thinking when I was listening there. I think they are guys that are stuck in 2007, I'm sure they would say they're not, and trying to make music for the young people of 2007 rather than for the young people of today. There you go. Yeah. Very much. <laughs> Eamon, Eamon Brennan Harding. <laughs> uh, I'll get my pen and throw it An album of two halves. <laughs> so, stars from you, uh, Kate. Well, the thing is that there is so many parts to this album that MGMT fans will enjoy. And as I said, it's in two halves. I did want to enjoy it a bit more. Uh, I think the, fa- the production is absolutely fantastic. I think it's a three out of five for me and that's probably being a bit generous. All right. Yeah, I no, I would agree. I think this is definitely worthy of a three out of five. I, if nothing else, it will make me go back to Oracular Spectacular again. Mm-hmm. And if MGMT were to announce a gig here in the morning, I think I'd definitely go. There you me go. Too, well, that's too. that's, and you'd go to Kate despite yeah, everything. Yeah, All yeah. right, <laughs> MGMT and their album Loss of Life. Let's move on to our final album, then Swing Fever, an album of big band classics. What happens when Rod Stewart, Jules Holland, and Jules Holland rather, and a bundle of musicians, a very, very big band, get into studio, something like this. Milkman is on his way um, and every track will be milked to its absolute extreme, clearly. Um, Swing Fever is the title of the track. I suppose maybe I'm being too cynical about it all. It does feel like a big commercial exercise to me and is there anything wrong with that? No, look, it does exactly what it says on the tin and if you're a fan of that then that's absolutely fine. For me though, I can't separate Rod Stewart and Jules Holland who were so important for me musically. So everything Mm. back to, you know, Killing a George with Rod Stewart or Mm. Maggie May and then all of the great tunes to squeeze like you know and now to be doing this this for me reminded me this is Thursday you're on a cruise ship you know you're halfway <laughs> it's a it's a wet day so you're not getting off so you're going to listen to this stuff for four hours but both Simon and myself were slightly grumpy faced while, so. while listening to that uh, Kate you were giving us the swing moves I was given the little swing moves there's something I really enjoyed about this not because it's trying to change anything it's not a hot take it's not trying to do anything different it's because I 
I'm a big Rod Stewart fan and I can hear that he's having so much fun. And I went into, delved into the, the history behind them coming together for this and Jules thought he was being prank called by Rod because they didn't <laughs> actually know each other, yeah. which I found amazing. And Jules, they went, they recorded this fully live and it's just them having fun. It's yeah. not going to hurt anyone. You can pop it on while you're doing the dishes. Obviously, that's not a great review, but I think it's w- very well produced. Well, Jules thought he was being prank called by, uh, by Rod. I think we're all being prank called by Jules and Rod. <laughs> Let's have a listen to Pennies from Heaven. <laughs> the things you love, you must have showers, baby. So when you hear the thunder, don't go under the tree. Every penny shall be heaven for you, for you and me. Maggie May, it ain't. No, it is absolutely. This is, this is for sure. That's Rod Stewart and Jules Holland and their version of Pennies from Heaven. Nice trumpet solo there, actually, that I made to I made for a, uh, Mark fade on me. Or go, for me, rather than on me. Yeah. Beg your pardon. <laughs> go ahead, Simon. Yeah, well, look, this, again, I, I think Kate's absolutely right. This is great fun and all that stuff. But again, I just can't separate it. And even when I'm listening to, listening to some of the arrangements, all I think of is Ralph from the Muppets playing the piano and turning around with a big smiley head on him and Rod Stewart playing a special guest and I ju- it, ju- yeah. it just doesn't hit for me at all. Yeah and the big band I mean you can have a big band with 10 or 12 people it doesn't have to be 467 of them in a studio does it? No it doesn't but you know if you're having fun why not throw literally the kitchen thing <laughs> at it you know. <laughs> so um, what was the, what was your comment again uh, Kate? Good one to listen to while washing the dishes. While washing the dishes and having a little bop around your kitchen yeah. So, how, how does that translate into start? Now that'll go on the. That'll definitely be on the front of to listen to while watching the dishes. <laughs> be on Stars. the posters for the game. Kate Brennan Harding. I am going to. I'd say I'm going to be quite fair. I'm giving it three out of five. I enjoyed the production and I just enjoy hearing them having fun. All right. I, I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it a two out of five, just because it's a Friday. It doesn't deserve to, <laughs> but I'm I'm giving it two just because it's because it's Friday. Uh, I wouldn't mean quite as harsh as that. It doesn't even deserve two, says you. However, <laughs> um, wonder if we'll all be on the guest list for Rod Stewart coming to Dublin. <laughs> uh, he'll be playing at the Royal Hospital Kilmainham on Sunday, the 26th of May, 2024, and it was announced today that the Trinity Orchestra will be supporting him on that particular evening. Uh, what did we say? Sorry, it was two and three respectively, yeah. wasn't it? Uh, Swing Fever from Rod Stewart and Jules Holland, Loss of Life from MGMT and Filthy Underneath from Najin Shah, the, the albums that uh, Kate Brennan Harding and Simon Marr were talking to us about this evening. Asked you earlier on about the Corona's lead singer Danny O'Reilly is the son of what famous Irish singer? Mary Black is of course the answer and heading off to the Corona's Live at the Marquee in Cork as well as an overnight stay for two at the Four Star Clayton Hotel right in the heart of Cork City and I think there's their dinner. Well, no, well anyway, that's what definitely is there and Anne Leonard from Westmeath will be enjoying that with a pal on the night as well. Congratulations to you and that is our lot for this Friday evening here on Arena. Paul Shields and Leah Murphy researched. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Mark Dwyer was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Casey. Back to you or back with you on Monday night when among my guests will be the wonderful Jared Harris. Really looking forward to that particular interview. In the meantime have a great weekend. Talk to you on Monday. John Creedon will be with you after the news.